whenever you're suspecting a demyelinating illness um, at baseline, it's not a bad idea to check brain, cervical, and thoracic spine. You want to look at the entire neuroaxis. Hello and welcome to Brain Boy Neurology. I'm your host, Jamie Holloman. Let's get started. Welcome to Brain Boy Neurology, the podcast where we explore clinical neurology through discussions with experts in the field. We've got a great episode today on a topic that's near and dear to my heart. We'll be discussing the diagnosis of multiple cirrhosis through a patient case of optic neuritis. I'm interested in MS and I'll be pursuing a research fellowship in MS after residency. And so this conversation was right in my wheelhouse. I'll be talking with the wonderful Dr. Salim Shaheen who's a neurologist here at WashU, who specializes in the treatment of patients with multiple cirrhosis. Dr. Sheen went to medical school in Damascus University School of Medicine in Damascus, Syria. He then did his residency in neurology at the University of Iowa and completed a fellowship in MS at the University of Pennsylvania. After fellowship, he joined the MS department here at WashU. I've worked a bunch with Dr. Sheen, and he's been a phenomenal mentor to me throughout residency. He's a fantastic clinician and an excellent teacher. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Okay, I'm sitting here with Dr. Shaheen. Dr. Shaheen, thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Absolutely. And so today we'll be talking about the diagnosis of multiple cirrhosis. But before we get into our clinical case, I wanted to ask you a couple questions about your career and your own career trajectory. Sure. And so first question that I was interested in, so you did your medical school training in Syria Mm -hmm. at the University of Damascus yes, um, before coming here for a neurology residency at the University of Iowa. Yep. And so I was just fascinated, any big differences that you noticed uh, between the medical system in Syria versus the medical system here, or like medical education culture? Yeah, so yes and no. In many ways, the, the patients are the same, the illnesses, the cases are the same, the science that you get taught is the same. But of course, there's cultural differences and there were also differences in class size. Back when, in my day, we had about 600 students in each class, so it was mm-hmm. a much, you know, much more difficult to handle and at rotations, you had more students on each rotation. Wow, yeah. um, but I think that most striking thing is the, the cultural differences mm-hmm. between how you practice medicine here and there. Again, at the end of the day, it's evidence-based, which is what I learned. Mm-hmm. but how you apply it to the patient can vary markedly between countries. Fascinating. Yeah. And does that come down to, like, their, the specific way you talk with patients, share diagnoses, yep. talk about treatment plans? Yep. Like, uh, again, at least, you know, I've been here now for almost 15 years, but uh, back in my day, I hate to use that term because that, <laughs> that ages me, but back in my day, at least, you know, a severe, serious diagnosis, let's say like cancer, was not necessarily something you would share with a patient immediately. The family members would say, mm. please, can you keep it from them? You know, which is very different here. For the most part, we're open with the patient about the diagnosis, and then the patient can choose to tell others. Mm. I have known an MS patient through acquaintances that does not know she has MS, for example, mm. um, and the family wanted to keep it that way, which is weird because she's having these manifestations, and you, one would think that she would know. Yeah. Um, but... I don't agree with that approach, but, yeah. you know, you have to kind of respect it sometimes Absolutely. when dealing with patients. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's super interesting. And 
So then you did your neurology residency at University of Iowa and mm -hmm. then went on to do an MS fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania. Yep. What initially got you interested in multiple cirrhosis? Uh, so I knew even before residency, I liked autoimmune diseases. In fact, in my, in my first year of residency, the program director for internal medicine was a rheumatologist and he tried to get me to switch to internal medicine and do rheumatology because we kept talking about these, you know, interesting autoimmune things. And that mm -hmm. continued into uh, my neurology years. Um, I like the patients. I also like uh, what I liked about it then, which remains true today, is the innovation that's happening within the MS field. Absolutely. Back when I was in residency, it was 2007, 2008, we did not have even one oral medication. Mm. So, but we could see them coming on the horizon. So it was a very exciting time to be part of MS care. And I don't think I expected it to continue to be this way up until today. You know, here we are 12, 13 years later. Yeah, yeah. that's crazy that, uh, to think about. I, in terms of that timeline, just 2008 was when we had the first oral medication. Yeah, it was, that's when the trials were wrapping up. Some of the trials were wrapping up. Uh, Jelenia was approved, what, 2010, 2011? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it was amazing. It's, an, it's been an amazing ride. And it's fascinating, too, because I'm um, interested in multiple cirrhosis and will be going into multiple cirrhosis mm -hmm. fellowship myself. And I share that same interest into rheumatology. I feel like if I was to do internal medicine, I'd probably be a rheumatologist. Be exactly. Yep. Um, because it's sort of almost like uh, you're a detective there and you've got all these um, different interesting presentations and tests that you can order. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's fascinating that we both have that. that I common. agree. And it's, it's, I'm not an immunologist per se, but you have to be very good at immunology, you know, to, to practice in neuroimmunology. So that was another kind of, you know, indicator that this is what I wanted to do. So it ended up being a combination of several factors, but it was not a hard decision to choose in my fellowship career. Makes sense. Yeah. And did you always see yourself in academics? Yes. So um, my father was a professor in the pharmacy school back in Syria. So kind of like always, you know, I, I attended some of his classes. I used to see him grading papers. This is back in the day when they used to bring papers home and grade them. Mm. That's always been, you know, interesting to me to, to pass along your knowledge, technically, like work in a university, teach newer generations. And that was reinforced when I did residency and then fellowship. I liked that aspect. And then plus, you know, if you're interested in research, you know, obviously an academic career is most often the, the best way to go, Absolutely. which is, you know, it's, it con continues to be one of my career focuses. Yeah, that makes sense. And from working with you personally, I you say you're a phenomenal teacher. And I, a lot of times I'll come off sessions having worked with you and being like, ah, I finally grasp it now after you're able to explain some, some aspect or some uh, technique. I'm glad I appreciate <laughs> the feedback. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Before we transition then to our clinical case, uh, something that I've been asking all the interviewees is if you have a non-medical book recommendation. So, uh, it's, it's a difficult choice. So, you know, I, I can tell you what books I've, I'm reading or I've, I have read recently. Right. And I always have a, at least one fiction book and one nonfiction book going at the same time. Nice. Plus, my six-year-old daughter and I are reading Harry Potter together. Oh, no way. Because I, had, yeah. I have never read Harry Potter nor uh. watched the movie, so that's an experience. But anyways, mm -hmm. so fiction-wise, there's an American-Irish author by the name of Tana French. She writes mystery novels. Interesting. Uh, it's kind of a series called The Dublin Murder Squad. You know, there are several books. Mm. I think I just finished the series, but she's got a new book out, so I'm excited to read that. Mm. Nonfiction, I try to read books that are beneficial to me 
um, but also that some, you know, every once in a while I also choose a topic that I can help out my patients with. And this particular book was recommended by my primary care physician. We were chatting about books, and she said, you got to read this book because I've been trying to take on meditation. Mm. And this, there's this best-selling author called Robert Wright. Mm. He wrote a book. It's now uh, four yes. years old, Why Buddhism Work. Absolutely, so it's, it's, yeah. it was fascinating to read the science behind it, kind of like have him explain some of you know, these practices, mm-hmm. which you know, in our work, you, you need the evidence. You don't want to take somebody's word for it. So this book was kind of a nice way to show why certain aspects of meditation and Buddhism work. I'm now reading a book called Why We Sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first part of it is mostly what we know, what neurologists know without you know, even needing to read a book, but I'm kind of intrigued to get to the later stages of the book because I consider myself a caffeine addict and I'm mm-hmm. trying to cut down on that. So, um, yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, Robert's Wright book is phenomenal. And I think especially like someone who's yourself, who's very well grounded in research and evidence-based practices, it allows almost an entry point to meditation because exactly. he sort of puts it in the context of, no, this is actually sort of scientifically yeah. grounded. Yeah, and I needed that. Whenever, you know, if you've ever tried meditation, it's very hard to continue to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and nowadays there's all these apps and tools, so it's easier to do. But still, whenever I start to doubt that it's helping, I say, okay, there's evidence, just like we do when we practice medicine. I, say, yeah. I, you know, I know there's, there's evidence to suggest that this is going to work and help. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And that's uh, envious that you and your uh, little daughter are going through the Harry Potter series. Yeah. That's going to be a... Is she liking it so far? Oh, yes. Yeah. She <laughs> is now a big fan. She was Hermione for this Halloween. Uh, so, yeah, we're yeah. at book number five. So oh, man, we're almost done. Yeah. <laughs> that's super cool. Great. Um, so let's uh, jump into our clinical case. Okay. We'll be talking about the diagnosis of multiple cirrhosis. And so our case involves a patient I've named Miss Oxford. Uh, she's a 21-year-old woman who presents for evaluation after five days of vision loss in her right eye. She reports that she had gradual onset of vision loss and is now experiencing periocular pain uh, that worsens with eye movements. She has no history of any prior medical problems or neurological symptoms. On neurological exam, uh, you note a right afferent pupillary defect um, in her right eye. You also note that she's got diminished visual acuity with 2070 vision in her right eye. Uh, The remainder of her ophthalmologic exam and neurological exam is normal. You obtain a brain MRI as well as a C and T-spine MRI. Brain MRI demonstrates enhancement of the right optic nerve, but the spinal MRIs show no evidence of any other lesions or any other CNS abnormalities. And to start up, with this case, what do you typically ask when you're seeing a patient for the first time um, where the diagnosis of MS is in the differential? So in some, th- some, some patients like this, I ask a lot of the questions that have already been answered within the presentation. You, know, you want to try and hit on as many aspects of a dem- typical demyelinating presentation as possible. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned, you know, for example, central vision loss, pain with eye movement, all the things that are in the textbook, you try and kind of elicit how many of those does the patient have. So that's number one, obviously, you know, in, in delving deeper into the presenting symptom. Mm-hmm. In a young 21-year-old, there may not be a lot of past history, but, you know, I try to ask about previous neurologic symptoms mm-hmm. that may have been um, overlooked. Uh, again, the younger the patient, the less likely you're going to get something out of that, but it's worth asking. Even though technically you may not be able to use it in the diagnostic criteria, it may be reassuring to hear that there may have been a previous relapse. Mm -hmm. So 
I, say, I ask the patient, have you read about MS? Because they're usually presenting to the MS clinic. They know that this may be something that they're going to be diagnosed mm -hmm. with. And if they have, I ask them, well, do you identify any of the MS symptoms that, like, as something you've had in the past? Mm -hmm. And if not, I list some. You know, you don't want to go overboard because you don't want to start suggesting things to the patient. But I list some mm -hmm. of the typical features. I recall a story out of fellowship where a patient said, yeah, you know what? Two years ago on my honeymoon, my shoe kept falling off my foot, you know, when we'd walk on the beach and mm. I thought it was because we were in the sand, but she, the more you ask, she was describing foot drop mm. that resolved to within two weeks. So, and because mm. it was her honeymoon, she didn't really pay too much attention to it. She attributed it to circumstances. Mm. Yeah. You know, if you prove that there's where we're, I'm sure we're going to expand on that later, but if you prove on exam that there's some findings related to that, you could use that episode. Mm. If not, you could still, you know, to yourself, you could maybe use it, but you may not be able to formally use it in making a diagnosis. But I'm sure we're going to probably touch on that later in, in your questions. Absolutely. And so when you say you, there's a couple of questions that you might prompt the patient with if they personally don't have any recollection of any events, mm -hmm. what are those questions? So, in, in this instance, she is presenting with vision loss, but the opposite, if somebody's presenting with other symptoms, I ask about, you know, have you had any vision symptoms where you lost vision or had blurred vision out of one eye? Mm -hmm. The way I ask about partial transversmyelitis is I ask about, you know, asymmetric numbness in the legs, going up to the belly, the chest. Mm -hmm. I ask about weakness in one leg more than the other, you know, dry, fall, unexplained falls, mm -hmm. um, bladder symptoms. But again, try and keep it general, and sometimes that will lead to them, you know, because everybody has nonspecific symptoms. You mm -hmm. just have to be on the lookout for the more specific possible previous event. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Great. So then you'll sort of do a screening question, and essentially you're looking for um, typical syndromes that patients present with, mm -hmm. uh, with multiple cirrhosis. Doing some research for this interview, I found sort of a short list of uh, syndromes that were mentioned as mm -hmm. very typical, typical of MS. Yep. And so some of these are um, optic neuritis, and specifically what that entails is uh, painful vision loss, tends to worsen um, with eye movements. It can be both unilateral or bilateral. You also get transverse myelitis, um, which you also mentioned, which is uh, typically presents as a focal uh, weakness and sensation loss, um, typically in an arm or a leg. Mm -hmm. um, intranuclear ophthalmoplegia, or sometimes specialists will just abbreviate it to INO, and that's a, a difficulty with eye movement. It's, it's tough to describe audioly, um, but essentially it's when the patient looks to the right, the affected eye won't be able to go fully into the right or, or bury fully, um, and so it'll keep looking relatively straight mm -hmm. um, when the patient looks to the right side. And yep. The same thing if the patient's right eye is affected and they look left, the right eye will keep looking straight. Yep. Um, I was interested to see trigeminal neuralgia was also. So that's debatable. It depends on the literature that you read and who you talk to. It is more common. Trigeminal neuralgia is certainly more common in MS patients, but mm. because it is not specific to MS, mm. most specialists will not use it as a typical demyelinating event. Mm -hmm. um, it's again, it's one of those things that if you hear it in the history, it should make you consider MS more, but you may not be able to use it and say, well, I think, you know, with your trigeminal neuralgia, that was your first relapse, for example. Mm -hmm. I see. Got it. So it's suggestive, but not in of itself, yep. really. Because it's, as you know, it's not specific, right? Yep. So same with, you know, other symptoms like vertigo. Vertigo can happen in MS, 
but it is such a non-specific so it can happen from so many entities that it's yep. worth noting but it might not be used as an like an official relapse makes sense and trigeminal neuralgia i typically think of the presentation as there is severe pain usually on one side, on of, the side the of the face yep yeah and then the last one I saw was uh, cerebellar syndromes mm-hmm. or sort of anything where the patient reports clumsiness or difficulty with walking. Um, sometimes they might report that things are jumping around, which might be indicative of a, a gaze of a nystagmus mm-hmm. or a tremor on exam. Besides these uh, sort of big five that I found in my research, any other typical presentations you encounter? No, you, you listed most of them. So, you know, we focus optic nerve and then go down cerebellum, brainstem, which we listed the INO, and then spinal cord presentations. I would add to the spinal cord presentation uh, bladder symptoms. That's mm. usually an important part of transverse myelitis. Does not have have to happen in every episode, but it more you know if you ask, it's they probably have some symptoms of it. Gotcha. And is that typically urge incontinence? Three types. Um, briefly, there's urge incontinence. There's overflow incontinence or a hypotonic bladder where they cannot empty, mm. and sometimes there's a mix. These, the mix tends to be more advanced, but yes, the most common, if I had to choose one, I would say the most common is urge incontinence. Got it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I also found a description of a couple of these different types of presentations mm-hmm. and then features of which that are a little bit more suggestive of MS and features of which um, make you suspicious for another etiology. Yep. Um, and specifically, um, in our case with optic neuritis, um, some of the things that I found were, were pretty typical of MS is if it's unilateral involving one eye. Um, if there's an afferent pupillary defect, when you shine it from the non-affected eye to the effective eye, that's um, when you see the you see dilation. Yep. Yeah. And uh, and so that's uh, suggestive of multiple cirrhosis. And then if the patient has a, a pain, specifically pain with eye movement, can also be mm-hmm. suggestive. Yep. Some things that I saw that might make you um, a little suspicious uh, for other disorders um, is if the patient doesn't have any pain. Um, if on fundoscopic exam, um, there's evidence of other disease, retinal hemorrhages retinal exudates, if they essentially have no recovery, those are all features that... What we call red flags, right? Mm -hmm. And you initially also said uh, that bilateral optic neuritis can happen in MS. It is a somewhat of a red flag. So when you see bilateral optic neuritis, but the story otherwise sounds like optic neuritis, you're probably within the demyelinating territory, Mm -hmm. but you may have to think about other demyelinating illnesses first before settling on MS. Yeah. So it can happen in MS, but it should make you be on the lookout for other potential items on the differential, other diagnoses. Makes sense. And then uh, once you do your, your history, specifically screening for these different syndromes that we mentioned, um, as well as other presentations suggestive of neurological symptoms in the past, how do you approach the neurological exam in MS patients? So, you know, everybody should get a full neurologic exam irrespective of their presentation. Of course, there are certain aspects that you pay more attention to depending on the subspecialty. Mm-hmm. For example, for us, uh, you know, we, we discussed, we already kind of listed what we would look for in an optic neuritis exam. Uh, you look at the other cranial nerves, you know, like you said, look at the extraocular movements, make sure the eye move, movements are okay because we're screening there for INO. Um, on the motor exam, you look for any upper motor neuron signs or symptoms, especially in the lower extremities, but also in the upper extremities. And this would be somewhat asymmetric mm-hmm. because they're one leg that has brisker reflexes or slight weakness. Um, are the toes up going on one side? And these would be uh, what I'm looking for is signs for a myelopathy or transverse myelitis because that's the, the second common thing in MS patients. Mm-hmm. So you look for this kind of asymmetric involvement. 
mainly you're going to see it in the lower extremities, but sometimes you see involvement in arm and leg. Mm. And then you, next you move on, look at the cere cerebellar signs, right? Because mm. that's the other typical syndrome. So is there some dysmetria or is there abnormalities in rapid alternating movements? Those are subtle things. And a big important part of our exam is obviously gait. Mm. Do they have weakness that's more obvious when they walk, you know, a very subtle, oftentimes you'll see very subtle hemiplegic gait or something like that. Mm. If tandem gait is impaired or if they have a white base gait, that may suggest cerebellar involvement. So those are all very important features to look for. And you notice that they're localizing to the syndromes or presentations that we just previously touched on. Definitely makes sense. And when you say uh, hemiplegic gait, does that refer to the Or I should say hemiperetic. Just to clarify. I see. And that'll be essentially, there's weakness on one side, one so side. favoring the yep. other leg. Yep, and there may be subtle circumduction. Again, it depends on how severe it is. Early in the disease, you may miss all, all of this. Most likely, the exam may be normal, other than um, the presenting sy syndrome or symptoms. Mm -hmm. But it's worth checking into them. Definitely makes sense. And something that I struggle with and continue to learn more is the fundoscopic exam, yeah. um, particularly when I'm trying to screen maybe for past episodes of optic deritis. Yep. From what I've read, uh, you can pick up optic pallor uh, will be a big sign of a prior episode mm -hmm. of anterior optic neuritis, but for the life of me trying to see it um, can be tricky. Any sort of suggestions to young sure. trainees? To yeah. So as you said, first of all, important note is if somebody's presenting with an acute episode, you're not going to see it on, on exam. And as you mentioned in our red flag list. If you see abnormalities on the on the exam, that should make you consider something else potentially, mm -hmm. right? Because most optic neuritis that happen in MSR retrobulbar, you're not going to see it on exam. But as you said, you may see evidence for a prior optic neuritis, so mm -hmm. you would see the optic disc pallor. Um, how how did I get good at it? Well, first I got a panoptic ophthalmoscope. Yep. The advantage to that is it's easier to use, um, and you you learn or you see the much more of the fundus quickly, more quicker than a regular ophthalmoscope. The disadvantages, because I've been using it since my first year of residency, is you don't, you're not as good as using the regular ophthalmoscope anymore, right? Yep. Because you're, you're, so if you don't have your tool handy, it may be difficult to get a good fundoscopic exam. Yep. Uh, the other piece of advice is, just keep looking at everybody's fundus, you know, and you'll do more of this in your fellowship because you're going to be doing a multiple sclerosis fellowship. So that should become a habit, no matter what the patient is presenting with, mm -hmm. just keep looking. Mm -hmm. um, you have to see a lot of normals before, and then before you start appreciating some mild pallor or some striking pallor, and you'll be able to tell the difference after a while. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that history influences us when it's mild pallor, I know that a patient had a history of optic neuritis, let's say in the right eye, as I'm looking in the right eye, I might, you know, if, again, if the difference between the eyes is very subtle, I might be suggestible to think it's pallor because I heard the history. Mm. But you could use that to your advantage as you're learning because you could say, okay, as I'm seeing, as you're seeing your follow-ups, you could say, this is a patient that I know had optic neuritis in the mm. right eye several years ago. They still have subtle symptoms. I should be able to tell the difference between both eyes. Yeah. So, you know, every day in clinic, as you spend several days in clinic, day after day, week after week, you'll get good at seeing normal and then seeing the very abnormal, and then you'll slowly learn the subtle abnormals. Absolutely. That definitely makes sense. And so then to bring it back to Miss Oxford, um, so as I mentioned, she presents with a history concerning for optic neuritis. Mm -hmm. I mentioned a little bit of a neurological exam already, 
um, which was that she had an afferent pupillary defect in her right eye, the same eye that she's reporting the visual uh, symptoms in. Um, she's also got decreased visual acuity, uh, 2070. Um, and I mentioned the whole rest of her neurological exam was normal. Let's assume we sort of kind of focus specifically on the things you mentioned, looking for signs of myelopathy, um, spasticity, um, increased reflexes, problems with gait. Um, take a look at her fundus, um, nothing abnormal there. Mm -hmm. Good. Um, and now um, you're getting to a workup stage. Yep. Um, are there any specific lab tests you like to order on these types of patients? Yes and no. Maybe not initially. So uh, logistically, I'd like to wait for the MRI because the appearance of the lesions or lack thereof on an MRI might influence your differential. And so you might expand or shrink your lab list. Mm -hmm. um, we now have a habit of ordering neuromyelitis optica and MO antibodies on almost all patients that present with optic neuritis and, and myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein or MOG antibodies, which is a relatively newer, newly described demyelinating illness. Mm. But if the brain MRI has lesions typical of MS, the yield of such studies becomes lower. Mm. So in a perfect world, I wait for the MRI first. Interesting. Um, similarly, it depends on who you talk to, but some experts would recommend doing some screening labs for um, metabolic, other autoimmune and infectious etiologies that can cause optic neuritis. Mm -hmm. The chances of them causing isolated, of any of those, which is a long list of causing isolated optic neuritis, again, without any red flags, mm -hmm. is very low. Mm -hmm. And so it's debatable in the MS community mm -hmm. whether or not you do those screening labs. It's not cheap. You know, it's got... It's, it's cost probably hundreds of dollars to do those labs. I tend to, especially the autoimmune labs, I tend to like to get some at baseline because, as you know, once you have one autoimmune illness, you're more likely to have more. Mm. So it's good to know a baseline. Mm. If the patient complains of new symptoms in the future, you'd be able to reference back to them and say, well, you were negative when you first presented, but now there's been, there's been a positive. Something's changed, right? Mm. So you may have a new illness. Let's talk about it. Interesting. That makes sense. And... Uh, so let's say um, brain MRI comes back, and as you mentioned, you're typically using that to see if it matches what you're expecting on your history yep. and physical exam. Mm -hmm. If it shows um, the typical findings of optic neuritis, in this case, unilateral optic neuritis, which I imagine would be optic nerve enhancement, specifically mm -hmm. in the affected eye, then that really increases the likelihood of um, optic neuritis, potentially suggestive of multiple cirrhosis, which might lead you down a um, more comprehensive workup. But if, say, the MRI comes back and shows something very different, I would imagine this would be more in the vein of uh, like ophthalmologic pathologies or um, maybe tumor or something else. So great point. Do you need the MRI? In such a case where in Ms. Oxford's case, the story is so typical. Mm -hmm. Her symptoms, exam, everything is very typical of optic neuritis. She's a young woman where you'd expect to see demyelinating optic neuropathies to happen. What's missing from the story because it's early on is how she responded to treatment. Correct. Mm -hmm. But um, the question is, do you need to see enhancement on the MRI to confirm optic neuritis? I don't. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, rarely do I order an orbital MRI, which is the be better way to view the optic nerves. Mm -hmm. um, because the story, you know, because the flip side is if the, uh, if the orbital MRI comes back negative, if you don't see any enhancement, that will not change my mind about offering her treatment. Mm -hmm. um, That's me. 
Yeah. So you know, but I would be looking more at what the what the, what the rest of the CNS looks like, what the brain looks like, what the spinal cord looks like. Okay. A lot of us will still get an orbital MRI that you know, and especially nowadays that we're talking about. And this is not we don't have enough time today to you know expand into other items, but with MOG antibody disease, um, the pattern of enhancement on the, of the optic nerve is different than other demyelinating illnesses. Mm -hmm. So the MRI may be useful in your differential there. That's fascinating. But start with the more likely diagnosis and then work your way from there. Got it. In her case, because uh, she's such a clear story on both uh, history and physical exam for optic neuritis, mm -hmm. you would almost feel comfortable in, with that to potentially recommend yep. treatment and potentially um, yep. do a more thorough workup for mm -hmm. multiple cirrhosis. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned uh, NMO and uh, anti-MOG syndrome, um, which seems to be sort of the two biggest um, alternatives in a differential diagnosis yep. for optic neuritis. Um, and you sort of mentioned um, uh, myelin oligoglycoprotein uh, antibody disorders. It's relatively new, um, but it, it tends to be both a, a testable um, disorder where you're looking for the presence of a unique antibody in, mm -hmm. in a similar fashion to NMO. Um, in my mind, when I think about a potential differential diagnosis for optic neuritis or MS in general, I also think um, like neurosarcoidosis, um, potentially um, maybe some other sort of uh, neoplastic or infectious process that's involving the CNS. Yep. Are there any other typical masqueraders? I guess it probably varies by presentation. Exactly. It varies by presentation. And if you talk to the neuroophthalmologist, again, in an isolated optic neuritis, the list is very short. Mm -hmm. Lupus and lupus syndromes, maybe. I mean, that's a... That's a big maybe. So if somebody has optic neuritis, if there's anything unusual about it, you may start looking at those like uh, lupus or antiphospholipid syndrome. Hmm. But interestingly, the flip side is not true. So I had a lupus patient who was referred to us for optic neuritis. And I asked the question of A, the literature, and B, the, the neuroophthalmologist and the rheumatologist, can you see isolated optic neuritis that looks more typical of MS in lupus, and the answer was not likely. This is probably a second autoimmune illness. That's so right. it's it's a, it's difficult to tease out sometimes. We keep circling back to the red flags. So in the in the lack of red flags, you're probably not going to find another item on the differential. Got it. Your red flag list is not done until you do the MRI, and you may need to do more studies. Right? Again, it depends on what you see, but it's it's a sequential approach. So history exam that we talked about then. Hopefully, if you can get MRIs, MRIs to help you look at the rest of the CNS, and then a hard stop, see where you're at, and then keep going from there. Absolutely. And you mentioned, too, that um, one of the things that was missing initially when I presented the case was uh, response to treatment. I sort of envisioned this as a patient presenting to your office, but more than likely, this patient would have presented to the ED for further evaluation, at which point they, they probably would have admitted her. And once sort of a comprehensive work has been performed, the um, standard of therapy for optic neuritis is high-dose steroids. High dose steroids yep. and, um, in my experience, it's, patients are very responsive to these steroids, too, mm -hmm. and you'll get a pretty rapid improvement of the visual symptoms. And so, presumably, if the patient had that kind of response, that's another checkbox indicative of optic neuritis. Yep. Um, okay, so then, so let's say we ordered the MRI. Um, do you typically, for patients with apneuritis, um, get both a brain and a cervical thoracic spine MRIs? Yes. Whenever you're suspecting a demyelinating illness um, at baseline, it's not a bad idea to check brain, cervical, and thoracic spine. You want to look at the entire neuroaxis. Makes sense. Um, 
And if you're, you're able to get them at the same time, go ahead and do it. Uh, some people will delay the cervical and thoracic to see what the brain looks like, but you're probably going to need it anyway, so you might as well do it. Makes sense. And as a young, uh, inexperienced neurology resident, I, it took me a while to put together why you don't get a, a lumbar spine MRI as well, okay. but it's essentially it, the spinal cord is terminated by the uh, lumbar I, portion. Exactly. And so so yeah. the, the lumbar spine MRI does not show CNS or show, you know, or the CNS portion that you see on the lumbar spine MRI, you can see it on the thoracic spine MRI. Yep. You're, not, you're not seeing the nerve roots on the lumbar spine MRI. Exactly. Yep. So patients ask, uh, that's the number one question patients yeah. ask, why aren't you looking at my lumbar? Yeah. And the, I, we explained the reason to them. Yeah, and that was a revelation to me as well. Do you typically then go for an LP as well in these patients? Yep. So again, it's, it's, I like these hard stops. Um, so, you know, first hard stop is after she presents, we talk about it and we may treat. Um, surprisingly, a lot of optic neuritis patients are not coming through the ER, but they're actually being seen, I would say 90% of my optic neuritis referrals have never seen the inpatient side of the hospital. Oh, they go to optometrists, to either ophthalmologists, they recognize, if they recognize the syndrome, the patient's treated even before they see us, uh, and then MRI is obtained. But anyway, so the first hot stop is seeing the patient, maybe even offering treatment with steroids if the story sounds typical. Second hot stop is MRI. What does it show? What else do we need? And third is LP and blood work. Got it. And when you say hard stop, so you'll you'll wait for the that you'll, data exactly you want you want the data first to dictate what you might order, especially for the lumbar puncture. As you know, it's not you don't want to go back and say I wish I got X Y and Z test on the lumbar puncture because uh, yeah. Right? yeah. So you'd better save save it until you know exactly what you want to check. Absolutely. If we went through that decision tree, so imagine you got the brain MRI and the cervical spine MRI and. Um, I initially mentioned that the brain MRI only shows optic nerve enhancement. If, if that's the case, do you then uh, pursue a, a lumbar puncture? Yes. Yeah. So that, this is where this is maybe a good place to stop and talk about why are we getting the lumbar puncture. So we said, A, the presentation sounds typical, for a typical demyelinating episode that you see in MS. Names that have been used for that is clinically isolated syndrome, CIS. Mm-hmm. Initial demyelinating event is probably a better term, but it's less often used. But anyways, it's just the first episode of a demyelinating symptom that sounds like MS. So we've got that. So now we know we are in the demyelinating territory. The MRI helps us, A, with differential, and B, with estimating a risk of relapse, mm-hmm. right? And so in, in a normal MRI, you can still use, you would say the risk of relapse remains low, and we can talk about those numbers later uh, if you'd like. And so next, the spinal tap, the lumbar puncture, is to continue in your differential work to obtain studies that are more likely to be seen in MS versus others, Mm -hmm. and to help you with estimating the relapse risk. Interesting. Specifically with the lumbar puncture, um, uh, my understanding is we're looking for evidence of uh, nucleated cells within the the spinal fluid, um, because multiple cirrhosis typically won't have little to no nucleated cells? Yeah, you you know, typically you see five to 10 at the most, but if it's normal, that's also to be expected in MS. The red flag uh, is about 30. If there's more than 30 white blood cells, you have to start thinking outside the box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, other big thing um, we look at is oligoclonal bands. Mm-hmm. Do you mind talking a little bit about what oligoclonal sure. bands are? So these are, if you've ever seen uh, the electrophoresis of immunoglobulins, you know, typically... 
in a healthy person without any problems, there are so many different clones of, of these antibodies, of these immunoglobulins, that they will not concentrate. Mm-hmm. The other end of the spectrum is a monoclonal spike, which is where you would worry about a blood disorder, where the patients are producing the, the, the blood system, the, the white blood cells are producing one clone of an mm. antibody that makes you think about things like multiple myeloma and things like that. Mm. Oligoclonal is when you see a few clones mm-hmm. of these, um, uh, of these uh, immunoglobulins, mm-hmm. and you look at it both in the spinal fluid and in the blood, and all they mean is that there is a, some inflammatory immune response going on. The reason you compare spinal fluid to blood is you want to see whether or not there's more in the spinal fluid than in the blood. Mm. So usually the lab report will say there were X number of oligoclonal bands, CSF-specific oligoclonal bands, or X number of bands detected in the CSF but not in the blood. Mm-hmm. Most labs will report number of bands in the blood, number of bands in the CSF, and then they'll do the math and they'll give you the total number the, uh, or the, the, the blood minus CSF number. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and you, what you're looking for in MS is more of a CSF-specific pattern. Mm-hmm. And uh, the presence of, once they sort of compared the blood to the CSF, that there's CSF-specific oligoclonal bands indicating a CSF-specific inflammatory process. Yep, exactly. And which is a pretty definitive feature of multiple strains. It is very definitive. It's 90% of MS patients will have oligoclonal bands, but it can be seen in other illnesses. So it is not unique to MS. Um, again, in the right setting, it's, it's suggestive of MS, but... Um, Patients, some patients with neoplasms, with tumors in, in the central nervous system might have bands. Some infections might cause bands. So again, interpret it with, in context. Gotcha. And in that same vein, um, how do you interpret the IgG index? So I actually, I don't know if I know exactly what, what that means. There's two other variables that you look at, and they all mean, um, they all kind of mean the same thing. There's focal inflammation within the central nervous system. Mm. The IgG synthesis rate, again, it makes sense. There's more IgG being produced in the central nervous system. Mm-hmm. I forgot, I forget how the math is done for the IgG index. Mm-hmm. But again, the, the same thing, it's, it's an abnormal value is indicative of a problem, inflammation problem fo- focal within the CNS. Got it. And uh, so um, you perform the lumbar puncture, um, the, the couple data points that will point you either way, if there's high nucleated cells, you said about a cutoff of 30, now you're starting to get suspicious for alternative diagnoses. If um, oligoclonal bands come back, um, that makes you more likely that you're uh, thinking about multiple cirrhosis. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I guess to then conclude the case, in terms of coming up then with a definitive uh, diagnosis of multiple cirrhosis, um, I typically will refer to the McDonald criteria mm-hmm. um, when trying to determine if um, the patient that I'm talking with um, meets criteria or guidelines for a diagnosis of multiple cirrhosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially what the McDonald criteria tries to do is show evidence of dissemination both in space and time, that they had uh, two discrete clinical events in two um, parts of the central nervous system, um, which sort of our research has shown over the years, um, tends to be uh, pretty definitive towards multiple cirrhosis. Yep. Um, do you, how do you think about and apply the McDonald's so criteria? It, first of all, it is very important to note that you use the McDonald's criteria. All you should use the McDonald's criteria for is to estimate risk of relapses. It's to call, instead of calling this an initial episode, is to say this looks like it's going to be a relapsing MS illness. You should not use the criteria to differentiate MS 
from other diagnoses. Interesting. And in fact, that's in the paper several times. They say, please only use this when there's a typical MS demyelinating event, mm-hmm. like this patient is presenting with. So don't, I t- tend not to bring it up until I have ruled out other things. I've cleaned up my di- differential list, and now I'm focused back on saying, okay, this patient had an initial episode that is typical of MS. Mm-hmm. What is her risk for episode number two? Mm-hmm. Because technically not every demyelinating event is going to lead to a relapsing illness. You know, there, as we said, there are several features that help with that. Mm-hmm. Clinicians end up using McDonald criteria less than you think because the pa- we still use it mm-hmm. because patients either have a very normal MRI like this patient does, in which case you can't, you, you can still use some parts of the criteria, but mm-hmm. you need the MRI to be abnormal to use most of the criteria, or the MRI will be so abnormal and look so much like MS that you know, you apply the criteria subconsciously without thinking about it. You're like, okay, yes, this is MS. This, uh, this MRI looks like MS. I don't need to go back and look at the criteria and make sure that the patient meets criteria. Um, the cases where there's a few lesions, that's when the criteria becomes useful because it gives you a reassurance that somebody has done the work and told me that if, I, that if there's lesions, a certain number of lesions, a certain number of locations, that I'm sure we're going to go through the criteria next, Mm-hmm. this person is very likely to have a secondary relapse, so they have MS. You can move on from calling it one episode to saying this is multiple sclerosis. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's incredibly useful for my knowledge, just sort of knowing it's not meant uh, to distinguish MS from other differential diagnoses. Yep. It's if you have a, an event typical for demyelinating disorder, what's the likelihood that the patient will have a mm-hmm. relapsing and remitting course yep. or a progressive course? and to sort of briefly cover um, the McDonald criteria. And I recommend anyone listening um, who does see a patient like this in the future, um, just check out the criteria. They have a really straightforward guide um, based upon different clinical presentations, what else you would need um, to meet the criteria for diagnosis of multiple cirrhosis. But as I mentioned, it all comes down to essentially um, confirming two different attacks that are suggestive of dissemination in time, and then two attacks that are concerning for dissemination within space, uh, meaning that the patient has involvement of two different parts of the nervous system. Mm -hmm. In terms of looking then at the brain MRI based upon these criteria, some specific areas, if you see lesions on the brain MRI, that might be suggestive of dissemination in space if they have uh, T2 lesions in the CNS periventricular white matter, the juxtacortical and cortical white matter, Mm -hmm. Um, or involving the brainstem and spinal cord. Mm -hmm. Those are all areas typically on MRI suggestive of multiple cirrhosis. The criteria also includes in sort of situations where patient doesn't overtly meet the clinical criteria, the addition of the laboratory data of those uh, CSF oligoclonal specific bands. And in sort of those situations, I'll sort of refer you guys to to check out online because it can get a little bit technical about when to apply it and when not to apply it. Yep. Um, and so then, so you've seen the, uh, Miss Oxford and sort of pretty confident with the optic neuritis, as I sort of mentioned, um, she only has the MRI evidence of the one enhancing lesion, no other clinical events in the past to potentially meet this dissemination space and time criteria. And let's say sort of CSF is, um, uh, shows evidence of oligoclonal bands. Great. How do you typically counsel a patient who's maybe doesn't definitively meet criteria for MS, but has some features that are yep. suggestive of it? So what we would then say is that she has, she still has clinically isolated syndrome or initial demyelinating event. 
a normal brain MRI other than the optic nerve and the normal spine MRI tells us that she does not meet criteria. Mm -hmm. So she will remain a CIS. So even if the spinal tap is positive for bands, you still will not meet criteria for MS. So then you revert back to different studies. Some of them all, some of them are relatively new. There is the famous optic neuritis treatment trial that was done now maybe over 25 years ago where they mm -hmm. followed patients Initially, they wanted to see which steroids worked best for optic neuritis, but they ended up following patients for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And in that and similar studies, longitudinal studies, where they followed people for 15, 20 years, the lack of an abnormal MRI places the relapse risk, so meaning the risk for a ne next episode, at less than 20%. Mm -hmm. The number is 15 to 20, depending on the study you look at. So in her situation, I would say with a normal MRI, again, you cannot use the optic neuritis abnormality. You, you'd have to have more of a typical MS lesion in the locations you just listed or a spinal cord lesion. So with a lack of those lesions, you'd say, listen, your risk of relapse is at less than 20%. However, then you add the CSF. In somebody with a normal MRI but a positive CSF, CSF I'm sorry, their risk goes up to 50%. So now they are at 50% chance of developing another episode. In a patient that has that everywhere in a patient where the risk remains at less than twenty percent, so again normal MRI, normal spinal fluid, mm -hmm. I tell them your risk for episode number two is low. Mm -hmm. At this point, you do not have multiple sclerosis, but we're worried about you. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, we know that over twenty years, you've got only a twenty percent chance of getting episode number two. We continue to follow them with serial MRIs. Mm -hmm. In a patient that is at fifty percent or higher, so if the patient has positive CSF, that's fifty percent. If a patient has a typical lesion anywhere in the CNS, it has to be typical, even though some of the papers don't specify that, then their risk, even if they do not meet McDowell criteria, their risk goes up to 80% for a second oh, wow. episode. Mm -hmm. So then they, you know, they would be very, so we will call those patients high risk CIS. Mm -hmm. And there are trials that were done in CIS patients that show us that if you treat them, you delay the second episode. So it may be, and we launch into a conversation about treatment. Um, next would be somebody who meets McDowell criteria, then this whole conversation becomes moot because we say you now have MS. Yeah. Your MRI shows us that you're definitely going to have a relapse mm -hmm. or almost definitely never say never, right, in medicine. Mm -hmm. So, And then we, we discuss treatment as well. That's fascinating. And I didn't, that's great that the evidence almost allows you to tier patients so specifically in mm -hmm. those different groups, which I think really allows you to, to focus your treatment. Phenomenal. So I'll, it's a, a good place to leave it. I'll uh, conclude um, just sort of with a quick summary of all the things that we chatted about. So we are evaluating a patient um, who's coming in, reporting uh, vision loss in her right eye, has a APD uh, in her right eye as well as, as well as decreased visual acuity. She was referred to you for evaluation of multiple cirrhosis. Um, you start the history by asking for um, specific symptoms um, related to her eye issue about uh, when did the vision loss occur, how, how quickly did it progress, did she have pain associated with the vision loss, and then you start screening for other symptoms that mm -hmm. might be specific uh, to a, a MS syndrome. Yep. And uh, some of those are uh, transverse myelitis, um, intranuclear ophthalmoplegia or INO, trigeminal neuralgia, and cerebellar syndromes, all of which uh, potentially increase the likelihood that the patient might have a demyelinating disorder. Um, and you ask that sort of first um, through just sort of a, a 
kind of general questioning about things that might be suggestive that the patient can think of. Um, and if they can't come up with anything, some slight prompting to potentially bring out those symptoms. Yep. And then you perform a neurological exam that's comprehensive, but specifically it focuses on uh, extraocular muscle movement, um, a fundoscopic exam, looking at uh, pupil dilation and constriction to screen for APDs, and then doing both a sensory and strength exam. I'm looking for any evidence of transverse myelitis, then standing up the patient, walking them, looking for subtle signs of hemiparetic gait or other um, sort of problems with gait, specifically with uh, tandem gait issues. The diagnosis is tiered to what you're seeing on your physical exam and your history and the further workup. And uh, that can involve uh, initially getting the brain MRI and, and cervical and thoracic spine MRI if, if not available. That allows you to do is sort of support your history and physical exam, and also rule out alternative diagnosis that might manifest as more diffuse uh, CNS involvement or, or lesions within the central nervous system that are indicative of other disorders. From there, you might pursue all types of uh, lab workup, um, but a lot of the, the studies we like to send initially are NMO, um, an anti-MOG, but then you could also consider autoimmune um, type labs or other specific uh, labs, depending on what your MRI is indicative of, yep. and also if you have um, any of the red flags, um, initial uh, history. From there, an LP might be indicated if the um, brain MRI and uh, cervical and thoracic spine MRI are definitively indicative of multiple sclerosis. The LP allows you both to um, screen for high amounts of nucleated cells, which are suggestive of an alternative diagnosis, and uh, CSF-specific oligoclonal bands with our, are more indicative of MS. Mm -hmm. From there, with all your data points, then can be able to say pretty definitively um, the likelihood that the patient, uh, one, had a, a demyelinating event, and two, the likelihood of them um, progressing to multiple cirrhosis. And from there, you can, as in her case, um, uh, tell her that she has optocaritis, and then also be able to comment about the likelihood of that progressing to uh, relapsing and remitting multiple cirrhosis yep. or uh, a persistent demyelinating disorder. Mm -hmm. And uh, any other um, big takeaways that you think are no, important? No, that, that's a great summary. Um, and fortunately, many patients present with typical presentations, so it's easy, uh, it's easy to go through the algorithm or the guidelines that we just outlined. Sometimes things don't, are not as black and white, but uh, fortunately, we have the tools to be able to work through the differential. Absolutely. Well, there's so much more to, to chat about. If you're ever willing to come chat some more, I, I'd love to have you on, but I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. No problem. Thank you very much, Jamie. I enjoyed it. Thanks. That concludes my interview with Dr. Shaheen. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to my podcast, liking me on Facebook, follow me on Instagram at Brainboy Neurology, or on Twitter at Brainboy Neuro. And as always, feel free to pass along any comments or suggestions. We'll see you next time. The opinions expressed on this show are those of Brainboy Neurology and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of the places of employment of the Brainboy Neurology staff. The opinions expressed on this podcast are meant for entertainment and education and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified, board-certified practicing clinician.